0: Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett.
1: And I'm Juliette Starrett.
0: And you're listening to The Ready State Podcast.
1: You got it. You stop it. You this got episode it. of The Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Element. And, you know, we've been traveling a lot lately. And when we do, something often happens to you.
0: We end up in crazy rooms sometimes. You and I were traveling, not recently. We're going to go way back. We were sitting in the room with all the WWE wrestlers.
1: Wow, that's way
0: back. Way back. It was a, just imagine a room full of like superheroes and costumes. That's what yeah, it, it was Yeah, it was a weird moment It was a yes. weird moment. And like, oh, the, the Bella Twins. And then uh, one of the things that they were talking about is we were talking about adding salt into the water. And a lot of, one of the Bella Twins had just talked about on a podcast, famously, she had peed herself because she is drinking so much water and she's having to go to the bathroom all the time and it was causing all these performance problems. And you and I were like, yeah. Yeah,
1: because you're not actually absorbing the water you're drinking.
0: Well, you're just blowing out all of your electrolytes. So people oftentimes think they're doing the right thing by just doing all this drinking. And look, if you're drinking water with food, we don't need to be precious about that. One of the things we see is that when people have to be conscious about body weight and they're trying to control their sort of calories in, oftentimes they kick out a lot of glycogen. They use their glycogen. And one of the things that happens besides just drinking a ton of water and not having electrolytes is that they, as they kick out all the glycogen, you lose all that body water, all your electrolytes are gone again. So putting those electrolytes back or being conscious of it in times where you're watching your calories, a little bit low glycogen because you're not eating a ton of carbohydrate can make you feel a lot better. And- which
1: which, for context often hap- happens to us when we travel, we'll go through long periods where we don't have access to food or can't find food. And rather than eating junky stuff, we often just don't eat. But we always make sure to drink some Element and make sure we have some salts on board. Dude,
0: I take my hot Element, I drink it out of a cap, my Yeti cap. I feel like so civilized. I pull my little, like it's like a two pound aluminum cap and I drink my salty water and I'm killing it killing it. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS.
1: This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Vitruvian.
0: I want to just give everyone a little glimpse into one of the things as your husband and spouse and partner that drives you crazy. We're leaving somewhere.
1: And then you decide you're going to work out.
0: Or get, sneak in. Or, and sometimes that or, has to happen that way.
1: No, no, no. Or we're hosting a party. We have 30 guests coming over at 6 p.m. And then you decide to start working out at 545.
0: But you know what's sweet about the Vitruvian? <laughs> it's set up in the garage. It's ready to go. Just recently, we had to fly to Salt Lake City. And we had a little window. I was on time. But I just went out and I was like, hey, hon, I just got to get some pressing in. And Seesaw Press is my favorite Pressing motion. Yeah, but just
1: to set the stage, I'm in the garage with my suitcase and my backpack on, like ready to go to the airport. And You're, you decide to set up the Vitruvian and do some seesaw pressing.
0: But you know what's so easy? It's so easy. I didn't have to put weights away. I didn't have to get weights out. I just started warming up, get going, got my kind of three or four heavy working sets. And that is one of my favorite aspects of this whole Vitruvian system is that it allows me... To sneak in some strength training without having to like make a big production and potentially just roll right to the airport.
1: Yeah. I mean, we often just have to fit in these like movement snacks and strength training kind of on the fringes of our busy the lives. Pressing is my good. And, and I have a feeling a lot of people listening to that have the same experience where you just have to try to fit it in where you can in 10 minute, 15-minute increments. And just having the Vitruvian right there in our garage has really made a big difference in, in you getting in some extra seesaw pressing and me waiting. <sighs>
0: Story of being married to me. You're welcome. For more information, go to slash Vitruvian.
1: We are thrilled to welcome Adam Bornstein to the podcast today. Adam is a New York Times bestselling author who is rewriting the rules of nutrition and fitness. He is an award winning journalist and the founder of Born Fitness. The former men's health, fitness, and nutrition editor and editorial director of Livestrong.com has seen a lot of trends come and go. And then something became clear diet plans are designed to make you screw up. He wants to change that with his latest book called You Can't Screw This Up, which was published this past May, 2023.
0: Uh, Let's just get out in the open. Adam is such an old school legend. He's been around for a minute. He's seen a lot. And if you are in the wellness fitness space... Chances are you're like, oh yeah,
1: I yeah. You've him. crossed paths with him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've we've known him, known of him, like since we began working in the space years ago, right?
0: And I, I really like that. There's a large trend towards how do we simplify complex behavior? What's essential, and where do we give people principles so they can get out of the weeds? I mean, we are demonizing bananas. We have to do something different. <laughs> so right. So what I love is that he's taken all of this experience and said, hey how can we get it better and how can we help people get better?
1: Yeah, and you know, a side gig that Adam has that we talk about extensively on this podcast is that he writes and produces Arnold Schwarzenegger's newsletter. I've heard of that guy. Arnold. And it was really interesting to learn uh, not only a little bit about Arnold himself, but about the process of actually publishing a newsletter with that much regularity and making sure that it has interesting, relevant content and what the process is behind that. And I learned a ton. I thought it was really cool to hear the think behind the scenes.
0: Of the largest Austrian <laughs> jacked albatross you could hang around your neck, then think about that newsletter.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot. And, you know, this combo it cool is to hear about so
0: it. fun. Please enjoy our conversation with, with Adam Bornstein.
1: Adam, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We are stoked to chat you up today. I'm thrilled to be here.
2: So thank you for having me. Let me just set the record for
0: everyone. I've emailed and texted with Adam. I know who Adam is. Adam has been in my life for as long as I can remember. But this is the first time I'm actually talking to you. Literally, is like if you're fitness aware, you probably have run into Adam and Adam's work.
1: Okay, well, then should we ask Adam what his work is, but maybe more specified? great. Great to know you. Yeah, great to know you. Anyway, good to see you. I'll just kick this off a little bit. I mean, you do, obviously, you and Kelly have been in comms for many years, but you are someone who does a lot of different things, from consulting to writing books to the laundry list is long of the things you do. So I would love to spend a ton of time on this podcast talking about your awesome book, You Can't Screw This Up. But before we get to that, Tell us a little bit of backstory about how you got into this space and what you're currently doing. Yeah, what you're what you're doing, what you're up to.
2: What I'm doing depends on the day, of the week, really. How I got into this space, I think was was an accident. I've loved fitness and nutrition and wellness for a long time, but you know, when I was growing up, it was viewed kind of as a hobby. You couldn't do what I do now, where people are like, "Oh, you're just going to be poor. We're going to gym and train people. It's like some horrible thing." So I I started on a very different track on the academic side, working as a researcher, both in psychology and then exercise phys. So I'm well-versed in being able to read studies, which for a long time I thought was just such a waste of time. Like, what am I doing with my life? I'm not happy. And it ended up being one of the most valuable assets because I ended up kind of hard stopping on the research side of things, deciding that I really just wanted to pursue my passion which was, you know, fitness and nutrition and doing all this. And I I realized that my ability to understand fitness and nutrition and my ability to read research and understand what people are saying, but then that combination so I could translate it into practical, useful information got me a job at Men's Health. And for many years, I was the fitness editor for Men's Health. I then became editorial director of Livestrong.com when Livestrong was the biggest like go-to site for fitness. At the time I was there, we had like nearly 45 million people per month.
1: I was one of those people, I was one.
2: Crazy traffic, it was, it was good times. And then I just realized that you know, they wanted to, if I'm being honest, they wanted to take the site in a direction that I was not okay with, which was just not prioritizing the right voices, the right type of content. And I felt that there was a social responsibility because people rely on the internet for a lot of shit. And it was like, if we either do this the right way, or I don't want to be a part of it on my own. And I remember being in a conversation where I had this great shiny job. I was living a block off the beach in Santa Monica. And they're like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. I just don't want to be a part of doing what I'm doing, but doing it the wrong way. ended up starting a couple different companies where I got to work with an amazing array of people. You know, everyone from like the best trainers you could imagine to the Tim Ferris's of the world. And my job was to help amplify voices, take people who had a lot of smart things to say, make sure that they reached a lot of people. And that has led me to working to everyone from LeBron to Arnold Schwarzenegger over the last like 10 plus years. So these days, I continue to do a lot of that. I think that I realized probably about 10 years ago that it doesn't have to be about me in order to make a big impact. So I spend a lot of my time behind the scenes, helping a lot of really smart people get their word out to help others. And so a lot you know, I've got a daily newsletter I do with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which you told me 10 years ago, I'd be like, that won't happen, but here we are doing that. And then every now and then when I'm not helping others or coaching people or formulating supplements, I am, uh, I'm writing books in my spare time.
1: So. You listed some names and for some people, maybe LeBron would be like the one that would have, you know, stars come out their eyes. But for me, it's Arnold. And I would like to know a little more about what it's like to work with him. I mean, I know you're doing the daily newsletter, but tell me more about him and what it's like to work with him. Because, of course, all of us are probably sort of obsessed with him on some level. He's fantastic. Wouldn't you agree?
0: And his donkeys.
1: And he has donkeys, which I mean, hello. Hello. And a little
2: little pig now. Schnelly's got a little pig, too. He's got a whole zoo. Let's be honest. He has a zoo.
1: But the thing is, is they're in his house, which is the dopest. And I'm like, if you are Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can have baby donkeys or little mini donkeys in your house.
0: Yeah. Tell us that, because I want to double click on that crazy journey for a second. But tell us, how do you end up working with that man?
2: Yeah. I think the uh, how did I work with Arnold was I wasn't an asshole. That's the short story. The long story is, I lived in Santa Monica for a while, and I used to train at a gym called Iron on 20th and Broadway. All right, and I guess apparently I trained different than most people there, probably because I wanted to be a supple leopard. Mm, mm, see what I did? Yeah, subtle plug. Um, and there was this guy who'd always come up to me and like ask me questions after I was training. I always appreciate when people. I think. When people would see me in the train, in the gym, especially at that time. I was the guy whose like hat was pulled down low. Like you just, I was there to just like deal with my life's issues and train really hard and then leave. There's this one guy would always really respectful, would ask me questions, and I know how intimidating an environment in the gym is. I know how hard it can be to train. I know how harder it can be whether you're a man or a woman to ask another person for advice or thoughts like that's not an easy thing to do so when people want to ask me even a spot is hard to ask for yeah <laughs> that alone let alone being like hey man i saw you doing this exercise what are you doing why are you doing it? how come no one else is doing it that's really tough so i always wanted to be really respectful and i just built a gym relationship right you got these like gym buddies that you just like would recognize. Yeah. I've always loved that part of like the gym culture. It's like, you might not even know the person's name, but you see him and you give them the nod. And it's just like, there's the mutual respect of like the community, the gym, I think is a special thing. And we probably do this for four or six months. And one day he's like, Hey man, do we want to like hang out outside the gym? And I was like, sure. <laughs> Random gym friend. And he's like, yeah, here, let's do lunch. But like meet at my office and we go here. I roll up to his office, main street in Santa Monica, and there's a security person. And I'm like walking in, there's a corridor And in the corridor. There's this huge mural of like just pictures of like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm like, hmm, LA.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it.
2: <laughs> go in, take the elevator, go up to the third floor, doors open. And it's like movie poster, movie poster, movie poster, movie poster. Cause you come out and you take a right it's all movie posters down this hallway of Arnold. And then there's this big brown door with the governor's seal. And I'm sitting there truly thinking like, where am I? What am I doing? I walk in.
1: Yeah, you're like, am I on a movie set right now? Like, am I getting right. punked?
2: walk in and I realize that this gentleman happened to be the Arnold's chief of staff. And I was there in Arnold's office and, you know, I got to meet Daniel and build up a friendship with him. And then he gave me an opportunity when Arnold's leaving the governor's office and trying to get back into movies and fitness to really help out with a wide variety of things. And if I'm being completely honest, I did it just for free. I was like, kind of like, I'm like, this is Arnold. You know, he wanted to build a website. He wanted to start creating fitness content. You know, he had been in the governor's office for so long. And I was like, you know what, one, super cool. Two, I've always been of the belief that, like, I don't care how big or successful, whoever I think I am, like, you kind of take that mindset in an intern where you got to just prove yourself over and over and over again. And I had yes,
0: mm-hmm. we were just talking about this. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You
2: know, I had no problem being like, I got these like big positions, but who am I? Right? I'm a guy that I need to prove myself over and over again. It's not, like, I still believe it's, you know, we talk about LeBron, the LeBron thing was like me spending two years proving myself to open that door, but proves it to Arnold and that started was now been a 12-year friendship and a relationship where he's just, he is the single greatest storyteller I've ever met because, you know, his, his chief of staff was the best. He's like the real-life Forrest Gump. This guy has stories upon stories. Like you go in his office and he has pictures. I've seen Forest legs. It's not the, oh my not God. the same. I would, it's close. You I understand. Know,
1: yeah. Like that is an experience, like a, one of those like life experiences where I'm like, man, I would love to have that experience just sitting in his office and hearing stories.
0: I have to tell you, I went to high school in California at the local YMCA. Clint Eastwood was the mayor at the time. You recall that, Lisa. And Arnold came <laughs> up and donated a lot of his original equipment to the YMCA. And came and opened up the YMCA, and for months you could rest your arms. I'm in high school, in the troughs formed on the wooden preacher curl bench that Arnold put his arms in. And so, literally, imagine you're a 17 year old kid and you put your arms in this thing. You've already met Arnold, and then you put your arms in there, and then you look at all the weights that you can't move, and you're just, I'm telling you, <laughs> and, and
1: you're like, and you're like, your elbows aren't going to gouge it out. No, you can't lift no, weights I, and I, heavy like, enough.
0: That is the kind of echo that this man has left in my life.
2: Yeah, he's he's a fascinating human. When you go back and you watch the tape, everyone talks about like, keeping receipts. That guy's been saying the same things for like 60 years. He's relentlessly consistent. He's incredibly focused. Love him or hate him, and a lot of people hate him. He's unbelievably accountable for everything he's done, good and bad. He doesn't shy away from it, doesn't run from it, which I think is kind of a rare trait because obviously made mistakes publicly, and he kind of confronts them. And it's just in terms of someone who's been so successful in so many different walks of life, you can't help but be around them. And people talk about it, but like, I want to be the greatest bodybuilder. Okay, you go ahead and do it. I want to be the biggest movie star. Okay. I want to become governor of the state of California. Okay. I'm going to do that. Like, it's just like, when, how, it's just, it doesn't even seem real.
0: The number of people that read the newsletter, we have been very, you've been very generous towards us when we ended up in the newsletter before. And
1: yeah, and thank you for that. We were stoked.
0: I get bombed by the m- earned it. by the most diverse set of people. And I'm like, you, you read that newsletter? You read that newsletter? I mean, th- it's crazy how many different walks of life, genders, personal identities identify with that written content.
2: I love that. And it's like, we started that in, in January of this year. We've not spent a cent trying to grow it. 20,000 people sign up on the first day, says so it's Arnold, but there are 550,000 people reading that thing every single day now.
1: Yes, that's amazing. Congratulations. You heard Kelly and I kind of like high tan a little bit on something you said earlier, but just that idea of always feeling like you have to prove yourself. And then I think secondarily doing work for free, even if you sort of feel like you've professionally already made it, And the reason that Kelly and I were talking about that is he was on a call yesterday and someone said, hey, Kelly, like, what is it? What's your secret? Like, why are you everywhere? Why are you successful? And, you know, one of the things we both talk about. when Well, the first
0: thing I said was Juliet.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we have this amazing partnership, which is great. But like, we've both been on the circuit talking about how one of the things we do a ton is give our time and ourselves and our energy away for free and having worked in a world with a lot of coaches and people who work on an hourly basis, you see certain people really struggle to be able to do that. They feel like they reach a certain status and, you know, there's no way they could ever even work for one minute for free. And I just, you know, I think that's a really flawed mentality just based on our own experience of really sort of giving. And it's so cool to see that you've been able to create these amazing relationships and professional opportunities for yourself by just being willing to be open and learn and do some work for free, even though you were already a boss.
0: If you're presented with that idea, if you could do anything and your money was no option, what would you do? That's really the answer you're you're giving right now. You're saying, hey, I've already figured out how to cover rent and food and health insurance. And so my side hustle is working, doing the work that I love with really incredible people. And that's what we want to get to. I mean, I, I feel like that opens a thousand doors and builds a thousand relationships. And it really is this lost art amongst a generation of young people because the internet has really confused us about that. So just we want to just high five because it is a hidden talent to say, hey, I, can I help? And like people are like, what do you want? And I'm like, I want to help because what you're doing is really inspiring to me and feeds the rest of my my life.
2: A high five back at you. I tell all of my closest friends, truly, they would say like, yes, this is exactly what M says. Like the day that, whenever, whenever the day comes where I feel I need to do good or help someone or provide my time, only exchange for money when everything becomes about business, it's literally like punch me in the face <laughs> and remind me like, who are you? you lost your, your way because we're lucky that we get to be in an industry where the impact of what we do is so dramatic. And I mean that sincerely, right? Like we have the power to, redirect the trajectory of someone's life. I don't ever take that for granted. And if I only want to get paid for that, I think I'm in it the wrong reason. And I think it's easy to forget sometimes the things that you did that got you in the position that you are, and then think you're bigger than that. It's like, remember where you came from. Remember the people who gave you the opportunity. And if you lose sight of that, you probably lose some of the magic that made you special or made people want to gravitate towards you. So I just thought I don't buy into like, right? My time is just as valuable as someone else's. I might have done something that more people gave me notoriety for, but time is time and we all have a limited amount. And I always want to make sure I set aside some for anyone because it's probably the best thing I could do. You know, you guys were earlier talking about the, the bolt through the camera before we, we jumped on here. I'll never forget when I wanted to change my career, we talked about changing my trajectory. I wrote all of these writers when I thought I wanted to be a writer, and no one got back to me. And there was a columnist, the Boulder Daily Cameron, Neil Welk, who responded to me. He's like, I'll meet you for coffee. And I sat down with Neil and asked him all these questions. And I remember like he was being like, Yeah, you're not gonna make a lot of money. And I remember asking him, like, well, would you recommend this? And he was like, you know what? I can't remember exactly he was like, I've been to X number of Olympics, this many Super Bowls. I've been like covering the buffs for like years. And he's like, I was able to keep a roof over my head, put my kids into college. He's like, I love what I do. And I was like, sold. And like the moral of that story is more like, I don't know if I would have made that choice if Neil didn't decide to answer my random email, me with this dumb kid who was no one, and he had such a huge impact, and I'll never forget that, right? Like, that is more than 20 years ago now for me. But anyone ever asked me, it's like, Neil took the time to go and do something. I think that's so important. You never know the impact you can have on others.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think Kelly and I can look back over the years and we can both come up with 10 people who did similar things for us, you know, just out of the blue, picked up the phone or invited us for coffee or whatever, just made a huge difference and huge impact in our lives. You know, before we move on, I do want to ask one tactical question about the newsletter, because I know Probably some people are on this listening to this, maybe create content, but you know, we're all in this content creation machine because of social media and emails and newsletters and all the content, content, content that everybody's sort of expected to create to continue this fire hose of content that we're all in. But how are you approaching and getting content for and inspiration for doing a daily newsletter? Right? A lot of people are doing newsletters, but I mean, a daily newsletter is a commitment. And you'll recall, Kelly and I did the mobility project way back in the dawn of time where we tried to make a video a day for 365 days. And we get that sort of role a little bit, but- We
0: invented the daily influencer. Yeah, yeah, r- hey, hey, Sorry, yeah, exactly. everyone.
1: Yeah, but I don't know. I just love to hear a little bit, tactically speaking, you know, how does it, how do you gain inspiration and how do you manage putting out a daily newsletter that has so much valuable content? A
2: lot of lost nights of sleep. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I, I was- a little ambitious in doing this, and I'll say it's one of the most rewarding things that we've ever done. But you know, having you guys having done it, you know, doing something daily is, oh my goodness, not sexy. What a, it's a ditch. Yeah, you dig a ditch. No, no, it it's hard. It's really hard. And I'm like the expectation is, especially if you've got this many people, there are plenty of nights where it's like eleven o'clock at night, and I'm like, shit, the newsletter isn't done, and you got to get it done. The inspiration, I think, the one good thing about this content heavy universe is that there's so much information out there and there's so much confusion and instead of looking at the information that is being created I look at where is the most confusion being created so that is like both where is there a saturation where lots of people are talking about one topic but all saying something different so there's a lot of noise but very little clarity or where are things that people care about but they're looking at the wrong thing. Right, it's so easy and how to sensationalize topics, and oftentimes the thing that gets discussed is what gets the most attention, not what would make the biggest impact. So I take those two things. We have a weekly writers' room meeting with Arnold. So talk about just having you know one of those experiences every week, whether I'm in LA with Arnold or we get on the phone and we just talk about the different things that he's seen, the different you know Arnold still to this day almost every day rides his bike to Gold's Gym and people come up to him and ask him questions. So he's hearing questions, he's getting inbound. Arnold might read something in the paper that he has a question about for me. He's like, break this down. And then it's also then going into the vastness of social media, which is such a scary place and just absorbing a lot of content and then taking that and being like, all right, because everyone loves to say, studies say.
1: Yes, it's a real trend these days. Right.
2: But no one actually backs up the study, references the studies or like talk about what they're doing. So there's an endless opportunity where for me, the majority of the time isn't actually coming up with topics. I have a Google doc that's legitimately like 109 pages long right now that I keep on adding things. And then once we take a topic, you know, I'll I'll move it out. The topics aren't the problem. The problem is like, where does the research actually saying words of that? And sometimes you end up down these rabbit holes. Like I was down one earlier today about... Fish oil, and there's a big trend on fish oil. And I start going down this where like fish oil is good for people and eating fish is good for people. But there are all these studies in the last four or five years that show like fish oil supplementation itself doesn't have the same impact as eating fish. So then you try and like make sense of this for, and then you start looking at like, well, what's the amount that you need of DHA and EPA? And then you start realizing that like, oh, only nine percent of supplements even have the amount that would be the minimum threshold, even if the fish oil products are working. So then you can start creating this narrative of like, oh, the headline becomes like a fishy situation, right? Or like fish oils are in hot water. That might be the subject line. And then you start adapting and telling this narrative of here's the issue because topics are all out there. And I think a big part of the content creation itself is who are you writing for? Rule number one that I learned, and this is, you know, we all talk about mentors is know your audience. I think a lot of people create content just thinking if the content is good, it should stick, but distribution is really hard to master. There's so much noise that it's hard to cut through that to give yourself the best chance possible, you really need to know exactly who you are writing for, what other stuff they're reading, what channels they're looking to, what influencers, and if you want to cut through the noise, if you have almost an obsession of who that person is that you want to help, it makes it much easier to create as opposed to like just writing in your voice or writing what you want to state. So I think part of the daily is having this obsession of who we're trying to help. And the other part is like, how do you parse through and then make sense of actually going an extra level instead of just saying, studies say, well, let's actually look at those studies.
0: You came out of, let's say, the muscular development magazine era of fitness, which is where a lot of us got a lot of information early on. You might find a book. I found a book on plyometrics from Tudor Bampa and Donald Chu, I think. And I mean, like it was really hard to find good training information. I mean, it was just sort of like if you fell into you worked with a coach and they read some Soviet studies and they had been in a program and you got lucky, maybe came out of track and field or some moving tradition. But you really started your journey then. You're in web 1.0, truly, but then you're in web 2.0 and which is sort of the subscription model you're a lot more sophisticated now we're in this i don't it's not even it's not, i don't even want to call it the 3.0 the ai the fitness algorithm who even knows the yeah the confusion do you think you can have the perspective in your writing without having this history without sort of seeing these meta trends because i feel like that's really a hallmark of your writing is that you have just seen a lot of changes, a lot of in vogue movements, in vogue patterns, and you're sort of wise to it at all. And you also have legit friends who are helping, you know, keep you anchored. I mean,
2: are you aware of that aspect of your writing? Yeah, I mean, I took nine years between books. I've ghostwritten a lot for actors and celebs and other people so like i've never been an actor in my life but ghostwriting feels like method acting you just spend enough time that you master someone's voice you try and make sure that their message cannot get out there so it sounds like them but then you create a narrative that hopefully tons of people will read and have been very successful doing that but between the last book that i wrote and doing you cancer just it was nine years and i had this book idea in 2014 I had a New York Times bestseller in 2012. I had a book idea in 2014, and it took me forever to figure out how to tell that story. It probably took me two years to like put together a proposal, and I sent it to my book agent, and he told me it was terrible, and he was right. And you kind of go through this process, especially after I had my New York Times bestseller, where like you think you write this great thing, and then you fast forward a year later, and all these people who like loved your book are stuck again or they have questions or they're frustrated. And it's very easy to question yourself of like, not necessarily like, was that book bad, but it's like, did I really solve the problem that I was trying to solve? Or can books even solve the problem? Because there's no shortage of books. You guys have a great one. One's behind you. Guys, I'm a buying customer
1: of your oh, book. Yes, What's thank you. Car? Thank you. I buy all your It's not just so automatic,
2: too, that it's going to be successful. I mean, that's the no, other
1: piece of yeah. this. Like,
0: You're <laughs> yeah, a New York Times I, bestselling I, writer. You are a storied, experienced coach, writing coach. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, I have this amazing idea, and I don't even know if people will notice it anymore.
1: There's so much. Right.
2: It's harder to cut through. It's harder to make sense. And it's also like, can you take what you think is a good idea and ask yourself, like, well, does this solve the real problem that people are having, because there's so many, right? like We can look across the lines in like the wellness industry and we have more technology, we have more access, we have more voices, we have more information. And by and large, we are less healthy than ever before. And it doesn't make sense on the surface. So at some point, are we just A, not asking ourselves the right question? Are we not solving the problem? Not that we're not putting out good information, right? There's a very big difference between there are some phenomenal books out there that don't have the impact because like, are they addressing what stands in people's way? And I don't think you can write, you know, I wasn't ready to write a book until I felt that I could address for me what was a big problem for people. Not just like I could write a book. I love writing books, but like would I solve a problem, if the message actually hit and it resonated, they might come back with other problems, but they wouldn't come back with that same problem. Or if they hadn't yet overcome the hurdle, they could still go back and be like, oh, I haven't mastered those lessons. Because sometimes, you know, everyone wants the quick fix. And sometimes people are not willing to take the time to master what they need to do. I think you guys probably see this better than anyone because so much of movement is about doing the boring, mundane stuff that isn't fun. It isn't sexy. But when you do it repeatedly, my goodness, does it make a dramatic difference? Like when I was a teenager, you guys, I broke my back twice. The first time, and this is back, right? So it's early 90s. And the first time I broke my back, early 90s physical therapy was like, go get massage therapy for six months, take some pills and like go back to playing sports. I played three sports growing up. It, it, yeah, so I had spinal cord, I had L3, L4. And you go and you start playing all of these sports again. And truly like one day I woke up and like, I couldn't like feel like one of my legs because I had two fractures, a complete break. You know, you're having serious sciatica, two bulging discs and I'm like 17 years old and I'm just messed up. And you see the the narrowing of the spine and the lower back. And like at that time, everyone's looking at you being like, well, have fun living a sedentary life. And I was lucky enough that my parents were kind of like, no, found an orthopedic doctor in Chicago. That's where I grew up. who dealt with all the sh- professional sports teams and like, no, you have to go through Intense physical therapy. And I'm like, oh, I'm more massage. And he's like, no, no, no. You got to build the core. You got to build the pillar. And like things that are like in vogue now, like glute bridges and single leg work and like rotational, anti rotation, and just truly seeing the body. That more than it, when like what really changed my trajectory, I was given a future where it's like, you can't do any of these things you like. You're pretty messed up at a young age. You're literally broken. You have two breaks in your back. You're in constant pain. What are you going to do? And I had someone be like, this is the track you have to do. And I became fascinated with movement and corrective work and mobility at a young age. And when people are like, well, can you not do anything now? I'm like, yeah, man, I can deadlift 500 pounds, but you broke your back twice. And it's like, yeah, because I did the boring stuff and it became a habit. It's something that I just do. And if you can get that to click, life-changing but like you brought the presence to know that like getting people to do that stuff there has to be some sort of trojan horse to get them to act because man is it hard to get people's attention man is it hard to get them to the buy-in man is it hard to get them to do know,
0: everyone cares about range of motion and flexibility yeah, yeah, yeah. and oh mobility everyone, everybody loves stretching. that's all they want to talk about people are like can i talk about you know
1: okay so <laughs> i want to get into Fail. some specifics about your book which i want to say i personally really enjoyed and had a great time reading thank you and I also want to tell you that you're a brave man to step on the rake that is writing a book about anything related to diet or nutrition. It's not a rake, it's a rail. Uh, It's a rail. You
0: licked the third rail. Yeah,
1: you licked the third rail. But I think you really did an artful job of it. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about, you said it took you a long time to really feel like you could realize what this book was and you felt confident it would solve a problem for people. but. Tell us maybe a little more about the why of this book.
0: Yeah, and I want to start by even just pointing out the titling (laughs) is so reflective of a person who's been around for a long time and isn't saying, I have 100% of the answers. I am the expert. But really, this positive message of saying, hey, we know that this isn't working or hasn't what you've done hasn't worked. You're a survivor let me show you. I mean, you can't screw this up is really, it's one of those messages that people just are so paralyzed. And I just want to give you props for even just that opening salvo approach makes it accessible and how important that perspective of your writing is.
2: Thank you. That really means a lot to me. And I think that the book itself, the why was first and foremost. I need to realize, like like we're saying, there's no shortage of all this information. There's some really good nutrition books out there. And like, people are just like, they have no idea. And there's some absolute just hot garbage. So bad, so ridiculous, so manipulative. And I started asking like, well, where do we really see behavioral change? Because this is what this is about, right? It's about behavioral change. It's not about nutrition. it's It's about behavior. How do we get people to change behaviors? And we don't really see a lot of people covering behavioral change in a good way. I've been very fortunate that I've had the chance to work with people like Tim like Ryan Holiday, you know, I've known James Clear for a long time. I'm like, we need to start borrowing other people's disciplines and applying it to fitness. And then we need to ask ourselves like, well, why is it that people struggle so much? And I kind of came up with these like three C's of like cost, convenience, and complexity are the real barriers. If you scrape everything away, right? Because a lot of different diets work, a lot of different workouts work. The problem is that people can't get them to work for a long period of time because no one can be consistent things end up being too complex or they end up being just like a haves versus have not. So if you've got a lot of money, this is great because you can buy your way there. And if not, good luck, see you later. Good luck having a terrible, unhealthy life. So it's like, well, how do we account for that? And then, you know, I took, I worked with Tim for five years and Tim's question to me all the time when I would like be helping him with business stuff was like, What would this look like if it were easy? And I always hated the question. I knew it would like be coming and it'd be like, I'd be like presenting all these things like, yeah, but Adam, what would this look like if it were easy? And I'm like, Tim, you're so smart. And why are you making me answer this? And I realized that we don't ask that question in nutrition. We actually go the opposite way. We're like, how hard can we make this? And then if you can do this, you will be successful. But there's no way you'll ever sustain this in a real life scenario. Because when you're busy and stressed and overtired, or you drive by your favorite restaurant, you're just going to break and then you're going to feel terrible about it. And the thing that I kept on hearing, because the one thing I've learned from doing books is always have people read it beforehand and to always have people take the plan. And I don't talk in absolutes, but always have people read it and always have people take the plan so I put 500 people on this plan but I'm in a slack group and the people who are having the most success the most success kept on saying to me like I'm gonna screw this up I'm gonna screw this up and I'm like wait a second where's this coming from because this was not originally the title of the book but it became so clear that what stands in people's way is their own mindset and their own perception of what it takes to be healthy and what it takes to be healthy is not what you've been told, and there are different tiers to health. A lot of people who just want to move better or feel better or lose 10 pounds, the things you have to do are actually pretty minimal. But what you're told to do is something so extreme that the moment you get off of it, you gain the weight back and you think, I'm broken, I'm horrible, I can never eat carbs again. And I'm like, no, no, no. You could have done a fraction of the work to get the same output without having any of that emotional disaster. And then I realized that emotions are such a big part of our everyday life has anyone ever covered the emotional side of like how people feel about a diet or how people feel about food or how much anxiety they have every time they eat? And as I start kind of putting together this puzzle, I'm like, oh my goodness, that the issue here is that we constantly are expecting ourselves to screw up. The things that we perceive as screw ups, like having sugar or eating in a restaurant is not actually the screw up. It's the compensatory behavior itself. So if you can refrain from getting people to think, I'm gonna screw this up, and then when they do the thing that they've been taught is bad, you tell them, no, no, no. This is actually a part of the plan. They no longer catastrophize. They no longer spiral. They no longer pile up all of this stress and anxiety and guilt. And it fundamentally changes the way people go about eating, thinking about food, and when real life just happens they don't do that thing where they're like, oh no, I screwed up. I'll start again on Monday, but Monday becomes like the following Monday and the following Monday becomes like the following year. And that is the pattern. The average person will go on a diet for four to six weeks, and then they go off of a diet for 12 to 16 weeks. And if you just do that math, it's pretty staggering to the point. There was a study at UCLA that compared dieters to non-dieters and the average non-dieter gains 1.2 pounds per year. And the dieter will gain air from four to six pounds. And the thing is, during the first four months, they lose a lot of weight, but then the next eight months, they gain a ton of weight because it's that yo-yo approach as opposed to if they would have done nothing, they would have been better off. So it's helping people get off that crazy roller coaster ride, which really truly becomes a mind game.
1: Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus.
0: One of the things that I hear as a theme for you is that you and I have both crested 50 and somehow you become a little bit more obsessed with the fact that everyone could benefit from having a little more muscle on their frame as they get 50.
1: Yeah, I mean, having muscle mass on your body is like a 401k for your body. And there's a, people who are calling muscle the longevity organ now. And- Do
0: you know how I, vindicated I feel?
1: <laughs> that's true, you should. You know, and what I see around us in our community is a lot of people who- are working hard and exercising, but yeah. often already showing the signs that they're losing whatever muscle mass they did have, and not very focused on trying to maintain what they have or even put on an additional yeah. muscle. Yeah,
0: and and let's recognize that I may be an endurance athlete. I may be a person who society has said that being skinny really works, and that's the model where I, you know, have a, a reasonable idea about. For me, about what my body should look like, that's independent of the fact that everyone really could be rolling into their 50s and 60s and 70s, holding on to a little bit more muscle mass.
1: Yeah. And, you know, my sort of, you know, muscle mass stack, if I could uh, call oh, it that. Whoa. Um, Easy, is, bro. Is You know, I'm trying to eat between 150 and 180 grams of protein a day, and I'm taking five milligrams of creatine every day. And that's quite a bit of protein. And I find that if I'm able to supplement with 20 to 40 grams of protein powder every day, you I really can pretty easily hit that number if I just eat a normal amount of protein at my other meals. And so, you know, those to me are like the two supplements that, you know, you'd have to take from my cold, dead hands, especially as a 50-year-old perimenopausal woman.
0: Dude, jacked and tan. I always talk about the 50% of jacked and tan plan being the tan part, but I really appreciate that you're on. on I'm on the jack part. You're on the jack part. Hey, if you want to learn more and get your own meathead Juliet stack, longevity stack, go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off
1: your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Yeti. What we want to talk to you about today is our love affair with the Yeti Yonder water bottle.
0: I know we're obsessed. We are obsessed. One of the reasons that I'm a big fan of the Yonder is when I go on travel, and I know this is going to be matter to you, you are going on a crazy bike packing adventure with Rebecca Rush. Yes, and you're going to be like four or five days in the wilderness carrying everything, and you're riding a long way. I'm, I have done this before. I'm terrified in terms of biking Could distances. I don't think you were
1: riding 50 miles a day.
0: We were, but we weren't <laughs> carrying our stuff. So I'm worried that you're going to die.
1: I might die. A little bit. I might have to be helped. But up. I'm not
0: worried that you're going to not carry. You, you're you obsessing about weight stuff now. Like you're like, hey, maybe my sleeping bag is too heavy and maybe I'll cut my toothbrush in half. But what's great about this yonder is it comes in actually a big bottle size so that you will be able to carry enough water and the bottle itself is light. You can't do that with, I just don't think the bladder works great all the time. Right in terms you of cooking and yeah. dealing, and then also bike bottles. No, 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 bro. No, it's not the Yonder work. solves that problem. And did we mention super leak proof?
1: Yeah, and you know we love insulated bottles, and we we definitely trade off between the two. But because we do a lot of travel and a lot of outdoor adventure, we also use the Yonder bottle a ton. It's like a really important part of our water bottle quiver. <laughs> I don't know something you, we use on the very regular. I
0: don't know if you know this, but I'm not actually a small kid. And sometimes I'm like, it doesn't matter. I'm already so heavy. Put the heavy thing in my backpack. Nope.
1: Nope. It does matter. It does Even matter. for you.
0: Always <laughs> matters. Look, if you want to get your own yonder, go to the slash Yeti.
1: Man, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I love this. And, you know, one of the things we were just talking about yesterday, we talked about quite a bit as we've been promoting our own book, Built to Move, But just hearing that data, like dieters versus non-dieters and the weight gain just reminds me of, you know, the thing we've been talking about is this simple idea of just being able to eat together with your family and be normal, you know, versus like microwaving some weird frozen meal that you got that's a diet meal and you can't eat with your husband and kids because you're on some weird diet. Just that alone from an emotional standpoint, because it's weird and you're taking yourself out of community and taking yourself away from doing something that's normal. Which is like eating normal food with your family. Man, I mean, I don't know. I just, that's and one I, of a thousand challenges I want, I want we have with our current culture.
0: That one of the things that happens, you kind of hint at, is the potential dysfunction you set up for your kids watching you have this relationship. Because if kids are going to model, then they're like, oh, I, I understand what this looks like. I have to be super severe and restrictive. And then I, you know, it's a party and I come back and I watch mom and she doesn't eat with us and I watch dad and What's interesting is this book isn't even just about body composition for mortal people. The amount of disordered eating and strange relations with food we see in athletic and high-performance environments, I want everyone to hear is probably 2x what we see in sort of mortal everyday people like myself, is that the the relationship that our best athletes have to food, you think they're shredded, they're jacked, they're living, they've got it organized. It's even crazier. And stranger because they almost have a whole set of different pressures on top of them. Well, so, and I would
1: just add to, I would expand that group to include like influencers and people in the health and wellness business. I mean, it's a big, wide group.
2: They live in a prison of their minds. Some of the best looking people we've ever seen, their relationship with food is terrible. Not everyone, but it's really bad because there's this anxiety, right? I point out one study that like the average person, this is the average person, not the people who's lives depend on their bodies the average person feels anxiety seven times every time they prepare or eat a meal so if you extrapolate that times a minimum of three times a day like you don't need another 21 incidences of stress and anxiety in your life and if you don't think that has downstream effects on what you crave how you eat how you internalize all that You're kidding yourself how it affects your sleep. And then when you have disrupted sleep, how that affects your eating, right? Like sleep disruption affects the two primary hormones, leptin and ghrelin, that affect hunger and satiety. It's like all of these things are tied together. And it's amazing to me that, right, the simple act of being able to sit down and eat a meal with your family can create so much anxiety. But I have parents to me all the time who feel like they can't eat in front of their kids. They don't know what to feed their kids. They don't know what is okay. Or that they eat great, and then like in you know a dark corner they eat something that they feel guilty about, and they just go crazy on it. First of all, they shouldn't even felt guilty in the first place. But like, why are they craving that? Right? We are people that we want what we can't have. There's this fascinating study that I talk about in the book, and there was in the journal Appetite, where for one day and one day only. The scientists identified forbidden foods, so the foods that, you know, you don't want to eat as much of. You can have them sometimes, right? So it's going to be kind of the ultra-processed bakery type of foods, and they told people, let them eat ad-lib, right? So you get to eat whatever you want during the course of the day. We're going to monitor you for a day. Just don't eat these foods. Whatever you do, don't eat these foods. Don't eat these foods? Cool. Don't eat these foods. What happened? They ate 133% more calories, right? It's like you had one job. Don't do this. But we see it repeatedly over and over and over again. The more we tell people that they can't have something, the more that they desire it, the more that they crave it, as opposed to when you actually give people some leeway to enjoy this. They eat it less often because they just, it feels good to know that it can be there. And when they eat those foods, they find that it doesn't actually serve them the way that they thought. The worst thing that you can do until people have mastered better eating habits is to take everything off the table. People always ask me like, well, where do you start clients? with?" I'm like, the place that no one expects. I ask people what's the one food they love most, and I'm like, all right, we're not getting rid of that. We're not getting rid of that, because I don't want you starting this plan off waiting for the day that you can be like, Adam, you're fired and I'm going to go and eat my pizza because screw you, you took that from me, right? No, I want to show you that you can have the things that you love and you can build healthier habits around it. And when you actually develop those habits and when you don't catastrophize your behaviors, two things are going to happen. One, when you eat the pizza or whatever it is, you're not going to feel bad. Two, as you actually develop these habits, you find that you crave the pizza or the thing much less because you find out what serves you better. It's like anything else in life, but we're obsessed with this idea of discomfort. There's a whole chapter I have on this idea of comfort where change happens in discomfort. But the biggest mistake we make is that if you think of the Yerkes-Dotson curve of like anxiety and performance, we create so much discomfort, right? So this is this inverted U where you're looking at stress, anxiety, and performance, right? And at one end where there's a ton of stress and anxiety, performance is super low. So this is where you can tell people, you can't eat anything, you're training six days a week, this is boot camp, don't screw it up. The other end when you also see really low performance, there's no stress or anxiety, Yeah, sit on the couch, you're fine, you'll be healthy, you'll be great. You need to find this sweet spot in order to bring out people's performance. And as they get better, they grow as people. So I think that the idea of the comfort zone isn't like you have to abandon all comfort. You actually need to expand your comfort. The example I give in the book is like, if you take a new trainee, right? First day ever in the gym, you can have two options, right? I can have them do some body weight movements, like even body weight squats, three sets of 10. If you're doing them well, keeping the tension on, the next day their legs are gonna be crushed because they just haven't done that they're not gonna be able to sit on the toilet or they can walk in i can load up a barbell with 300 pounds and be like yo let's go do this you got this they're gonna be crushed but they're probably gonna die and they're never ever
1: (laughs) ever come back
2: gonna step in foot in the gym again because like the level of discomfort could be relative should be relative to where someone is if you truly want them to grow diets don't care where people are. Say, I'm cutting out this, I'm cutting out that, you're gonna eat all of this, and you're like, go ahead and succeed. It's like throwing someone in the deep end when they've never even stepped foot in water. It's absolutely insane, but every diet does it because we've been wired to think, this is how we have to eat, this is the suffering I need to have in order to be healthy, and it's truly the worst way to build a healthy habit. Healthy and suffering, how those became (laughs) conjoined, it's amazing. It's so broken, right? Like when you do something good for you, not to say that it's not hard, not to say there's some discomfort, itch it on a net, make you feel better, right? That's the idea, right? Pain goes away, you have more energy, you sleep better, you get stronger. Also, people conflate this, like suffering with health in a way that's so bizarre, probably to all three of us, but we see it everywhere. And it's like, it's a huge part of like what's wrong with the industry. of like, no, 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 you, you should be in pain. You should be enjoying your meals.
1: It doesn't
2: have to be this hard.
1: So I'm going to pump this Tim Ferriss question back at you. What would it look like if this was easy? Because, you know, I think the three of us could wax on and on. And, you know, we have our, we have very similar ideas and about, trying to help people think more expansively about food in our book as well, Built to Move. But what is the way? And one of the things I love is that you actually have a specific plan about how people can actually go out to eat. Because again, when we're talking about mental health and communing with others, like one of the things we do together is we eat together. And one oftentimes, if you have a social life, that involves going out to eat. And, you know, most people are going to fall right off a diet if it means they have to bring a baggie of rice and barbecued chicken into their dinner with their girlfriends on a Friday night, right? So I just want to shout out to the practical part of this. Because you won't bleed for your art, Juliet. Yeah. Tell us what it would look like if it was easy versus...
2: First of all, you pack it in Tupperware, clearly not a plastic baggie.
1: (laughs) I think, you know why I say that? I, I have to just quick side thing is Kelly's grandfather, Jack Starrett, had a heart attack actually. And he literally would bring to like out to dinner. He would bring like baggies. Someone of, told him fat was bad. Yeah, it was the, you know, it was like the fat free time of, of you know, one of the many phases of restricting things out of our diets. But yeah, he would bring like, literally like a Ziploc bag of chicken in his pocket to a restaurant. Not wrong. Right. So that's where I get that. It's been done by a starette
2: Respect to Grandpa Jack for that one. What a boss. I think there are a couple things, right? Yes, there's, I lived for two years. I traveled every week, Tuesday to Thursday. So I had to like learn how to eat at restaurants. It just became like a part of life. And I think we catastrophized this, right? Because there's- and That's a parts.
0: real part. Travel and work is a real part. Let me just tell a quick story how reality this is because you were traveling in Croatia- with your best friend and you sent me a picture of your breakfast and I was working with the <laughs> with the Customs and Border Patrol special response team and I went to Jack in the Box and got a black coffee and then- It was the,
1: actually Burger King. You we went to Burger <laughs> and King. And
0: then ate the hard boiled eggs in that, sour and that was my, my choice. I had hard boiled eggs and black coffee. So it really isn't, sometimes you're confronted with really not good options.
2: Terrible options, right? And I want people to A, navigate that knowing that like there's room for this. We act like our bodies are like not resilient and are so frail. And I don't understand that, right? Like one bad meal is going to completely ruin you in a week where you have, let's say a minimum of 21 weeks. If you go 20 out of 21 or, you know, 19 out of 21, that's somehow these like couple meals that we eat out are terrible, right? Then I had to go ahead and I went to the top 50 most visited restaurants in the US. So this even includes like the fast food chains because I've read a lot of, diet books, I've written diet books, I've edited diet books, I've read a ton of them. And I always laugh because like when it comes to eating out, one, they either completely ignore it, like you're not going to eat out or like DoorDash and Postmates aren't right on our phone and be like, (laughs) well, this is a loophole in the book. They don't even discuss it. So I'm just gonna (laughs) go ahead and, and, and swipe and take care of this. And then two, when you get these tips designed to be helpful, it's like, don't eat the bread don't touch the chips when you're out at Mexican, never order dessert, order your entree, cut it in half and set aside the entire thing. (laughs) If you're able to do this, I give you a lot of credit, but I have yet in my adult life to go out with someone who has cut their meal in half intentionally and set aside half of it and only ate that. It's like, Talk about like being built for real life. It just wasn't practical. So, like, what does it look like if it's easy? I just
1: want to add to like, I have never been gone to a Mexican restaurant with a basket of chips put in front of me and not had at least one. Like, it's humanly impossible for me.
2: It is humanly
1: impossible. I cannot do it. I think Kelly could actually do it.
2: If you can do it, you're you're robot.
1: Yeah, you're
2: robot. Can't can't do it. So I wanted to say, a, what does it look like? It's easy. You can eat eat at restaurants. It's okay. And B, if you have to eat at them more frequently because of lifestyle factors, because of travel, because of work, because of means, because of the hours that you work within your family, I want to show you how to navigate these menus where you're not only ordering salads, right? There are real things that you can eat. And I want to just teach people to eat that like it's not about like going low carb or going low fat, right? These like dietary tribes, you can actually do either one. We have enough research to say with a high degree of certainty that a lot of different diets work. Your key is to finding the one that you can sustain for the longest period of time. Your key is making sure that in each meal, as much as your capability allows, you have some level amount of protein and fiber. Because as you lose weight, here's what's going to happen you're going to become hungrier and your body is going to fight against this. Most people don't talk about it. They say like, oh, when you lose weight, suddenly the pearly gates of heaven open and like, you just like feel great and you're never hungry again. And all you want to do is eat salads. That doesn't happen. We need to be real about this. It's actually the opposite, right? You crave more of the stuff that you want because hunger is navigated by the brain. It's why all of the Ozempics and Wegovy's of the world, everyone's like, oh wow, we found this magic pill. Yeah, it's not doing anything for your metabolism. All it's doing is changing brain chemistry so that you don't want to eat. It's why any type of addiction now, people are like, oh, GLP-1 agonist, maybe this works because like we found an addictive trigger in the brain. Love it or hate it, all you need to know is these people who are losing more weight are doing so because they don't crave the desire to eat. Protein and fiber, when you eat them, it makes you not crave more food. We should also slow down in our meals. The easy button is one of the funniest studies I think I've ever read in my life. The average person eats a meal in eight minutes. Eight. And when you think about it, yeah, we probably, some of us eat them even, probably I mean, half of that, right? I know myself, I sit in front of this computer and we'll eat many of my meals. It takes our brain 20 minutes to process the food that we eat, uh, sending the signal to our brain saying, hey, I'm full. So how many times have you ate something, still been hungry, ate more, ate more, like an hour later you're like oh god i'm so stuffed I'm, I'm so full and it's like yeah because like you didn't have enough time to process all of it so some of this and it's the hardest thing for people to do you tell people to take so you mean you mean sitting down with my my daughters and my wife and actually
0: asking them about themselves and what's going on in their minds it's going to help me
1: lose
2: weight yeah you have to have a conversation with your family yes
1: So I I have to tell you that both my parents who are, uh, my dad's 80 and my mom's 78 and they're both really fit and lean one of the things that we observe that they do is it takes them more than twice as long to consume a single meal. And in fact, sometimes it drives us temporarily insane because we're all like, dude, we're not retired, we have a life, like we can't sit at the, you know, it's a little triggering to us sometimes because we have like, we need to move on in life and not be-
2: Go, 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 I've got somewhere to be. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but it's also such a good lesson to see, right? Like they, you know, again, neither one of them have like dieted or focused on that in their life. They've been able to maintain their body weight, but one of the things they do is eat their food really slowly. Maybe excruciatingly slowly, but it's a thing.
2: There was a study that compared people who took nine minutes to eat versus 29 minutes to eat. And the people who took 29 minutes to eat the exact same amount of food put on their plate, they ate 100 calories less per meal without changing anything else. So that was 400 calories less per day, 2,800 calories less per week. Right, when you're like, being like, how do I lose weight? Like, slow down the pace, and it's true, it happens. It's a whole day of calories. Yes, it's fascinating, like, when you slow down or when you go to a restaurant where, like, they parse out the meals, how much you fill up, just because, again, when there's food in your stomach, it sends a signal because your body is biologically not wired to just keep eating unless you're eating the wrong things, which is a whole separate topic, right? Ultra-processed foods do appear to be that one category that we need to limit because they don't function in our body the same way, in the same way that if you eat mostly whole foods and somewhat processed, right? Olive oil is a processed food. We don't need to demonize all processed food. When I talk about ultra-processed, I mean things that have an unnatural amount of fat, salt, and sugar added to them. And this can be things that are completely fine, like some breads, bread is not a problem. Processed bread that has added fat, salt, and sugar becomes hyperpalatable. You want to eat like 16 slices instead of two, and it doesn't send the same hunger signal up, right? Like, so ultra-processed food is another one. Like, if this were easy, what would it look like? Because there was an amazing study done by NIH where they had people go like in an ultra-processed diet or a non-ultra-processed diet, right? So it's like you're eating like Chef Boyardee or you're eating just like whole pasta. And the idea was that macros were identical, but just one was going to be ultra-processed, one was not. In the first week, you have these people in these two categories and the people started eating 500 calories more per day on the ultra processed, and they gained all this weight where the people eating the non or minimally processed foods lost weight. And then here's the best part, they swapped groups, okay? So the people who are eating the whole foods were now eating the ultra-processed. The people who are eating the ultra-processed are now eating the less processed food. They lost weight when they changed, they gained weight. And it's just because these people were eating more and more and more, and you weren't sending that signal. So if you combine slowing down and you limit, you don't have to completely restrict the total amount of ultra-processed food, those two things alone save people hundreds of calories per day, thousands of calories per week, and it's kind of those little things without having to cut out an entire food group, without having to remove all carbohydrates or fats or thinking you can't have any sugar, which makes you think you can't have fruit, right? These extremes are not the way forward. Like You need to go ahead and build these habits. I tell people all the time, if your goal is weight loss, your job is to eat as much as possible and figure out how you still lose weight. And then when you get stuck, you make subtle tweaks. It's not to remove everything because that just backs you into a corner where when weight loss stops and you've already cut out all carbs, it's like, what are you cutting out next? You literally have zero carbs in your body, your body is now adapted. What are you going to cut out? Are you just not going to eat? Are you going to starve yourself? And that's why people end up like not being able to sustain results because they go to such an extreme that they don't allow the body to adapt. They back themselves into a corner prematurely.
1: Are you saying that two shakes a day in a sensible dinner might not be enough food for most people? <laughs> Are you old enough my way older than you that you know
2: I know I know exactly what you were talking about when okay. we were I'm
1: like I'm like did I just totally date myself right there?
0: <laughs> I don't know if you've had an ice cold slim fast. Ice cold slim fast in the middle of summer. Never yeah. going to turn down.
2: <laughs> I mean, but they would make it look so good cuz they put in those like tall like milkshake style glass for your slim fast.
1: Yes, with like a High with like a cool straw uh, and, and you're like, "Yes, up. I can do this." I like milkshakes? Um It's amazing. Okay, so I would like to just go back a little bit to this travel piece, in part because we both travel a ton. We have a ton of friends who have high level jobs who have to travel a lot for a variety of reasons, and I'd love to. And it
0: backs up because suddenly they're asked to go out and drink, and they're sleeping in a strange room.
1: It's there's more
0: pressure. There's a whole lot of things that sort of make those eating behaviors matter more to the body.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I I would just love, if this isn't too specific, like let's say you're gonna go to LA and you don't have a way to eat at home or whatever, I would love to hear just a little bit about like a day in the life of Adam on the road and you're eating out 100% of your meals. Like how do you navigate that? What would that look like for you?
2: I'm a big fan of this like plus one ideology where in any given meal, you're gonna start with like a protein or carb. That is kind of like the base of any meal. I'm like, I'm building a plate, there's protein and carb. And I decide whether I'm going to add a fat or a carbohydrate. So if I'm going to be eating a pasta-based meal, I'm probably not throwing it in a cream sauce or having something else. If I want to go a higher fat meal like a burger, I'm not getting a ton of fries. So the principle for me is just like if protein and fiber make up the majority of the meal, all right, you're going to have a plus one and that's it. And then I'm trying to create parameters that allow me to not be my own worst enemy. And what I mean by that is that when we travel, we oftentimes find ourselves traveling at very, very awkward times. So for me, it's important to have, whether I'm on the road or not, have kind of an open kitchen, closed kitchen, where there are hours. People will conflate this with intermittent fasting, but it's not that. Because I'm not saying fast for 16 hours, fast for 20 hours. You can do that if you want. What I'm saying is that if you can say like 8 a.m., my kitchen is open 8 p.m., my kitchen is closed. And again, these are arbitrary hours. And that means before 8 a.m., I don't care if I'm traveling or not, I'm not eating, right? Like, we need boundaries in our life. Boundaries are very, very important because we're not going to starve to death. You're not going to suffer. Like, we do usually our worst behaviors, right? Like, 95% of the damage usually occurs 10% of the time. And it can happen early in that morning, especially on travel days, or late at night. Right. And I, I go to plenty of social events, but like, I'm either going to make the decision that I'm going to drink or I'm just going to say like, listen, if these people want to judge me because I'm not drinking like too fucking bad. Like these are like, this is how I take care of myself. So uh, the day, the parameter that is about saying I have open kitchen, closed kitchen. So I don't end up eating like six burritos at 2am because I was out drinking. Right. I'm just not going to do that because that's not when I'm eating. Like if I didn't get my food in, I didn't get my food in. When I'm on the road, knowing that things are more caloric, I have to reduce the number of meals that I eat per day. I don't eat more than twice per day because if you are eating at restaurants, no matter what you try and do, you're going to be taking in more calories. But if you're smart about this, those calories can last you longer. So I'm a big fan of a double dose of caffeine. I cut off caffeine early in the day, but caffeine blunts appetite, prevents you from being your own worst enemy. So there's a coffee in the morning, there's a coffee in the middle of the day. I will either have a breakfast and a dinner or a lunch and a dinner. And if I want, I'll have some sort of like snack, which is usually like nuts or fruits or a protein shake. And that's it. Those are the parameters. Because when I've done anything else other than that, even though I know how to select foods, food is delicious, food is social, you end up eating more than you want, oftentimes unintentionally. So having these parameters- Are
0: you saying our recent trip to Germany where I'd eat a schnitzel a night? That's probably good that I was lighter on the breakfast. Yeah. <laughs>
2: My typical 3,000 calorie schnitzel is probably not. I mean, schnitzel is delicious. But yeah, I think, you know, when we eat and we eat out all the times, so you just have to assume that it's not like cooking at home. You're going to be taking in more calories. So habitually, we're used to eating at a certain cadence, but... What the body really just needs is, is energy, right? And you're going to get more than enough energy eating those couple meals out. So it just becomes a mind game of like, don't put yourself in a situation where you're potentially going to be taking in more calories, even when you're trying to make good, healthy decisions. It's kind of like know thy enemy. So when I'm traveling to LA, I usually don't have a breakfast. I have coffee because coffee is the best appetite suppressant I've ever found in my life. I get in, I'll have a lunch, I'll have a dinner and that'll do it for me. And if I'm absolutely like starving in the morning, I usually have like fruit and nuts or like a protein powder on me where it's just like, if the hunger pangs are so much, I have a backup option that's just really convenient and isn't going to be that bad for me. I'm, my kids make fun of me. I always have an apple in my backpack. I always have an apple. Like when I'm traveling, there's like always an apple. It's called there.
0: an emotional support apple. Everyone, just so you know,
2: <laughs> it's there if you need it.
1: I love it, but they're gonna remember that about you, right? Like, isn't that cool? They'll
2: like they will. They're, they got a lot of things. They're like you're so weird, Dad.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of things. I do love the two meal a day thing, and I realized actually in Kelly and I default to doing that without thinking about it, Much. especially when we are doing some kind of like. You know, we recently just flew to Michigan to drop our daughter off, which is basically a cross country, you know, East Coast flight for us. So it's like an entire day affair to get there because of the time change. And so we've, we usually pick up like a decent lunch in the San Francisco airport and we bring that on the plane. We have a coffee and we eat that at some point on the plane. And then by the time we arrive and get wherever we're going, it's dinner time. So we eat dinner and that's kind of it, right? Like we eat those two meals and we don't eat Sixty-five bags of pretzels on the plane, and we just, you know, we kind of try to limit to that. But I hadn't really thought about that as a strategy, and I love it.
0: Even the traveling, I was just, I was just thinking about even our daughter recognizing that she would have a coffee in the morning when she was traveling with her friends, and then they would eat lunch and dinner. Mm-hmm. They just were like, you know what, we're not hungry in the morning. We're traveling, and we're broke, so maybe that's a, a useful strategy. I love, I love the two. I think I also really do appreciate the the window when would I normally eat at home. Because how many times are we're at the airport at a strange time and I see a line of 30 people getting strange, crazy sandwiches and you know frappuccinos and, and I'm like, that's so much. And it's 5.30 in the morning and everyone's queuing up because it's a habit and it gives us something to do versus I'm like, I'm not even hungry yet. So I like that window. There was one time when we were just traveling for work in Austin. We got slammed. We ate dinner outside the window late. We were like, oh, we'll just get some burgers. And then we like... It was like 10 o'clock at night. And you and I stayed up all night with the meat sweats.
1: I mean, yeah, the window's actually really helpful. I mean, even last night, we went to our kids' back-to-school night. Didn't get home till 9.15 and we eat dinner. And guess what? We didn't sleep that well. Shocker. (laughs)
0: Kitchen was closed.
2: Maybe one of the things I've changed my mind most about, I'm a nighttime eater, you guys. I said I have nighttime obesity. I would like eat everything. And then you start kind of measuring how it affects sleep or I check like, does this impact HRV? If I eat close to sleep talk about just torpedoing your sleep just like me too ruining your night
1: for me it's worse than alcohol alcohol's not great for my hrv at all half a drink and you know i barely have that but i mean literally if i had a night where i ate right a big meal right before bed or like had a drink or two right before bed my heart rate variability would suffer more from all that eating
0: you know what i think to myself you too i think that's really a nice tip for all the people but I'm telling you, HRV is wrong. I'm a human hunting animal. And if I have to hunt at night before I go to bed and oh my god, my body is adapting. To I that. totally
1: have nighttime obesity too, though. I'm like I could failure. just basically not eat all day and then eat at night.
2: Kelly Sturette,
1: hunting animal.
2: Nighttime hunting, hunting animal. animal. That could be your next book title. <laughs> nighttime hunting animal. Diet.com. I, uh, <laughs> 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 this
0: is amazing. And, Really, what's really interesting, I just want to highlight for everyone that you didn't actually tell me what to eat or what not to eat when I travel.
2: I'm a uh, nutrition agnostic.
0: You didn't say any. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And what you said was, here are some principles that can help you and then do what you want to do within that principle. Thank you for that. And just to double click on everyone, this book, it's really wonderful. I think it's a really wonderful... We have conversations about nutrition with our elite world champion athlete friends who are under fueling, who have strange ideas about body composition. I was talking to a in-season World Cup athlete recently who said, hey, in this break, what do you think if I tried to lose a couple pounds so I'd be better in my sport? And I said, in the most high stress time of your life in this World Cup, you want to try to lose some weight. I'm like, let's try to change your body composition or recomposition you next season but right now, let's make sure we don't end up in a deficit. That pressure came from him thinking he needed to change his body composition in order to perform because some body composition thing was going to make him perform better. And so it's not just moms and dads trying to make their way in times of change. Really, these principles and these foundational ideas about a relationship to food affect all of the people in our community. And this book is such a wonderful touchstone about getting people to the right brain set.
2: Thank you.
1: And I just want to add, too, that we are in a phase of our life where we're all about how can we make information as accessible and relatable as possible and are, like you, obsessed with behavior change and environmental change and realizing that that's the thing and that these principles are the thing and this book is all of that and more. And I think it's really going to be helpful to a lot of people. So if you're listening to this, you should check it out.
2: You guys are too kind. Thank you.
1: On that note, where can people learn more, subscribe to the newsletter, pick up your book, follow you on Instagram, give us all the deets.
2: It's like my my digital card. So social media, everything's at Born Fitness. Name's just stuck forever. If you want the daily newsletter with Arnold, that's arnoldspumpclub.com. Arnold's Pump Club. Easy to remember. And more about the book is my favorite URL I've ever created. Can't screw this up. Dot .com. <laughs> we just dropped the U, can't screw this up.com to get the book. And uh, you guys, this is, I have to say, it. I'm honored to be speaking with you because I respect both of you so much for everything that you've built, everything that you've done. And I think that I'm pretty lucky because I get to learn from a lot of people, either directly or indirectly. And I've been able to learn from both of you for so many years. I can't believe that this is the first time we've really connected in a a virtual air in real life. It's pretty funny to me, but uh, this is awesome. So thank you for having me, you guys. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show.
1: Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone.
0: You got it!